it would be interesting to think about how golf would change for us if it wasn't hard. I'd be curious, what do you think golf would be like if it wasn't hard? Would would there be as many golf nuts? Oh gosh. Hey guys, Evan here. Before we get to this episode, I just wanted to give you a quick personal message for me, give you a quick update on everything that's going on. So a couple days ago, our Instagram account at the par train, which I know so many of you follow, which has become, it's crazy to say, I know it's just an Instagram account, but it's truly become really special to me because I put my heart and soul into that account. I've posted three to four times every single day for almost seven years and we're almost at 80,000 followers and the messages I get, it's, it's really become the way that I stay connected with all of you. Out of nowhere, our account got deactivated yesterday on Instagram. And I, I've gotten some of your tweets. I've gotten some of your emails. I'm doing everything I can. I'm, I've submitted about 25 appeals so far. I'm trying to talk to everyone I know who works at Meta and Facebook and Instagram. And we're doing everything we can. Apparently, there was a copyright claim made on something that we posted I don't know what it is. I did not receive an email for it, which is making this even tougher. And so I'm working through it, but I just wanted to come on here and give you a heads up in case you're wondering where the hell we went. You can't even find us. We're unsearchable. That's what happened. What I would suggest, and this is not me trying to gain a following on my personal account. I don't care about that. What I want to do though, is I want to continue the back and forth. Okay. We've got a, a lot of great launches planned soon. We've got our amazing new hats that were planned for June 1st, which might need to be delayed. We've got an amazing announcement and product we're launching with TaylorMade, which I can't wait to share. It's been a long time coming, which I'm not going to be able to launch until we get our Instagram back up, fingers crossed. So here's what I would ask of you. Follow my personal account at eSinger7. Okay. At eSinger7. You'll see enjoying the ride at the par train in my bio. So you'll know it's me. And join our email list at thepartrain.com. You scroll down and you'll see hop aboard the email list. I just want to create a direct line of communication in case you guys have questions, in case you have stories that you want to share, and just to keep this communication going. I'm praying and hoping with every fiber of my being that our account comes back and we can continue this great community that we've that we've built together. But for now, Give us a follow at eSinger7 and hop aboard our email list, thepartrain.com. And um, hopefully we'll see you back on the Instagram at thepartrain very soon. Thanks, guys. I appreciate all your messages and support. I know it's been weird. It's weird for me too. I haven't gone one day without posting, even my wedding. <laughs> I posted in the morning. Give us a shout at my personal Instagram and the email list. And, and we'll keep trying to enjoy the ride and keep chugging from there. Thanks, guys. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. I've got Matt Cermak, my partner in crime. Good to be back. Aboard the train. And I think Cermak's a little fired up right now. I think Very fired up. I think he's buzzing. But before we get to this interview with David McKenzie, Golf State of Mind, founder and mental coach, I'd like to welcome you guys aboard. If your golf game's off the rails, if you're sick of riding that struggle bus, nobody wants to ride the struggle bus, you come to the right place. We help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again, because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you probably can smile through anything. We talk about it on this episode, okay? We unpack oh, yeah. the mental game with PGA Tour pros, sports psychologists, like today, golfers like you and me and more, to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track, sir. okay? No, that's what it's all about. Ed. It's it's really what it's all about, sir. I know it's all about getting back on track. Before we get to this episode with David McKenzie, we got to thank our presenting sponsor, our friends at right Roback Activewear. Big news right there. coming out of Roback headquarters on the East Coast. Heard it all the way on the West Coast. That's how loud it was. Women's Activewear yeah. is here. Okay. And, you know, I know this show is a lot more guys than gals, but guess what? If you got a gal in your life, whether it's girlfriend, sister, wife, mother, Aunt, aunt, boss, cool hip grandmother. Who knows? 
We've got a lot of great women in our life, and it's about time we start giving them something that they deserve, okay? Let me tell you what Roback just dropped. By the way, Christina at Roback, one of the co-founders, this is big for her, and she wants Roback to be 50% women's and 50% men's from the sales standpoint. Like, it's a huge priority for them. And selfishly, she probably wants to wear all the great material and stretchy stuff that they make. So now they finally have it. Skorts. Great for tennis, golf, working out, active, whatever. Pickleball? Dresses, pickleball. Active dresses for golf, tennis, any activity. And now they've got hoodie and jogger sets for women. It's it's turning into a rollback women's line, not just dropping a product here. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole line. It's really, really cool and great gifts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine Um, giving a rollback hoodie to your mom. How much you would love that. I mean, they're so comfortable. Errands they, around the they, house, they working good. out. So guys, go to rollback.com, enter the code train, get 50% off and get a great woman in your life, something special that she deserves. It's really one of the best gifts. I got you guys this for my groomsmen presence and incredible people love it. So yeah. rollback.com, enter the code train, 50% off or tap the link in our bio on Instagram at the part train. There'll be a little link in there to get 15% off. That'll auto apply in your cart. if You don't want to mess around with the code. All right. Thanks so much to Roback for all the support. And thank you guys for getting all that great gear. I love getting the messages and seeing nice. how much you're loving the gear. So, all right. David McKenzie of Golf State of Mind studied sports psychology at the University of St. Andrews. We talked about that. And I thought this was a really great all-encompassing episode where we really push and pull, we challenge each other on mental game topics. We talk about how to get people out of their own way. Yep. And I think we talk a lot about reflection. We talk a lot about focus. And I think we did it in a way that you don't hear necessarily in other episodes. I thought it was a really great, all-encompassing conversation. I agree, Ev. Reflection's one of the themes here. Reflecting over a shot, reflecting over a hole reflecting over your round and everything that go and then tying it back to life. Right. And everything that goes into it. I think David did such a great job of kind of really digging into that and what effective tools you need, you know, to ultimately perform. Right. Yeah. You know, David's worked with players at every level, PGA tour, European tour, corn Ferry, a lot of juniors talk Mm -hmm. about that. How he works with his junior players and how he coaches them up. I thought it was an awesome episode. I think there's a lot to learn here. We got in some really good kind of brainstorms back and forth about the commitment challenge, mm-hmm. about tying in, understanding the mental game, but also understanding course management, how they intertwine. And if you really want to be good at the mental game, you really need to understand course management. So this is just a starter, I think, for us with with David. And we're going to have him back and really build on some certain topics because uh, I think the conversation is endless with David. He was awesome. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So as always, guys, we appreciate you hopping aboard. If this conversation with David adds value, do us a solid. Give us a review at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's really all we ask. It helps the show. And we love seeing your messages and reviews. No matter how much discomfort or fear you feel over the ball or that you're pushing through that day or how off the swing feels or what you're worried about, about what other people think, what do they got to do, sir? Just enjoy the ride. Hey guys, just enjoy the ride. Take care. Thanks guys. David McKenzie, welcome aboard the part train for the first time. We're excited to have you on board. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it. David's from Golf State of Mind. If you guys have heard of him, a lot of great articles and a lot of great content on your website and social, et cetera. But first, David, I have a very important question to start off today. You studied sports psychology at my favorite place in the world, University of St. Andrews. And I just had to tell you, David, that my wife and I are making my dream come true. I've been twice and we decided, we both work remotely, golf's a big part of my life and my work. We're gonna live in St. Andrews for a month in September this year. So I wanted to ask you, what are three must do's for extended living in St. Andrews, Scotland? Oh, gosh. I mean, I obviously went there because I was a passionate golfer. 
And I realized there was a university there as well. So it was a no brainer. I didn't actually realize that it was a good university until I got there. But I mean, aside from the, the six or seven golf courses, which should, should keep you pretty busy. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the great things about the golf there is like it, the golf courses are never the same, you know, each day, different weather and, you know, all the undulations. And it's just a very interesting place to develop your game. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, when, when they came to visit me, they were like, well, well what do you do here apart from play golf? Because there's just like three streets, three small town. I mean, it's just great. I mean, the, the walks along the beach that, you know, you've got a fair few pubs there. I forget how many pubs there are per person that lives in St. Andrews, but it's quite, quite a high ratio if you're into that. So just being in that town, it's just, uh, you feel the magic, you know, mm-hmm. when, you, when, when you're there and, you know, just being around that, that Royal Ancient Clubhouse and the 18th Green, it's just, it's just a fantastic place. Um, so it's great that you're going in September. That's such a really good time. You know, the students are coming back. There's going to be a lot of activity and, and the weather should be all right. Uh, don't yeah. go in November, November or December. Let me ask you this, David, for obviously outside of St. Andrews, if someone's visiting Scotland, what's the one place if they're going to drive a few hours, you know, North Barrett comes to mind, Royal Dornick, what would be your go-to spot if they're leaving St. Andrews and they're going to drive a couple hours, where, where's a good spot that they have to play? A few hours away. I mean, you've got, you know, to Turnbury, the, um, the Ayrshire coast over that side, that's another beautiful place. I mean, I, I haven't done a whole lot of exploring in Scotland. It's funny. I, I left the UK 20 years ago and every time I go back, I try to explore a little more and Scotland's back on the list um, because it's so beautiful. I mean, getting, getting up to the highlands and doing some walks and things like that. And obviously you've got, hundreds of, of beautiful golf courses but yeah i want to get up towards like inverness and, and aberdeen and up there and uh and check out check out all that natural beauty but there's, there's islands that you can go to have maybe if you decide to play carnoustie don't keep score that day just yeah, probably not enjoy the ride <laughs> yeah i'll come up with my process goal from today and we'll go from there but david i wanted to start today talking about this idea of fearless golf you did a tweet that I really connected with a a year or two ago. And, you know, I love what you wrote because, you know, let's just paint the picture for our listeners for a second. You've got, you're on the tee, easy example. I've got water, right. OB left. Right. And your tweet basically references, you say the feeling of fear is one of the best thrills of the game. And I really relate to this because if you can embrace the discomfort that comes with it, but don't let it dictate what you do on the other side of that discomfort is where the real gold lies. So I wanted to maybe use that as a jumping off point. Cause what if we could get excited when fear comes up because of what the opportunity is. And I will tell you, I know from experience that feeling of overcoming that discomfort is for me personally, the most gratifying part of playing the game. So let's start there. Your thoughts of maybe this misnomer of fearless golf being the goal, but actually embrace the fear as something we can push through. Yeah, well, firstly, I think one of the greatest things about the game of golf is all the different emotions that we experience. I mean, if you were to say, you know, you're just going to feel very comfortable and calm and confident every time you go to play the game, I think it would quickly lose its appeal. So, yeah, having all those emotions is such a great part of it. And obviously one of those is fear. And, yeah, I think it is a misnomer that that, there's such a thing as fearless golf because you wouldn't really want that. And if you are playing fearlessly, then you're not really pushing yourself beyond your, your boundaries. So I think that accepting that fear is part of that process and when you are nearing in on those goals, whatever they might be, that that is going to be part of it. Without that and without being able to overcome those obstacles, the game would quickly lose its appeal. And that is one of the one of the satisfying things about it. David, when we were working with your players really around this topic, too, we deal with oftentimes the fear of hitting the poor golf shot. But we also have this fear of hitting the great golf shot, right, of making two birdies in a row, three birdies in a row. I think, Evan, you mentioned in an episode a couple episodes ago, it's like the one sport when we get in a, sometimes get on fire in a roll and we've all dealt with this. It's like, oh my gosh, 
I've got to pump the brakes. This, you know, I can't seem to control my emotions, my body, my thought process, and ultimately the outcome. So maybe talk about that a little bit and how you deal with that with your players. Yeah, I think there is such a thing as fear of success and that I'm getting into that uncomfortable territory. And I think that, you know, what it comes down to again is just, you know, knowing knowing what the best things are for you to focus on in those moments, you know, so anticipating those things happening and, and, and having a plan for that and being able to do a great job of being able to control your, your attention and coming back to your process every time that uh, that's not to say that you're not going to experience feelings when you're in those positions, but, you know, being able to control your mind and keep bringing it back to the present, whether you're playing horribly and you're fearing shooting a good score or you're playing great and you're fearing, you know, you're just feeling uncomfortable that you have to keep this going. You have to protect. It is interesting, David, to think about, because I bet some of our listeners are like, I'd love golf if I'm hitting every fairway and I'm hitting every green and I got 18 birdie putts, you know, around. It would be interesting to think about how golf would change for us if it wasn't hard. Because I've recently reflected on how, if you think about the stuff that most people say at the end of their life is most meaningful to them, it was usually some of the hardest stuff, right? Being a parent is arguably one of the hardest things in life, but we all do it. Exercise and putting ourselves through hard things, golf, tough conversations, pushing ourselves. Like that's going to my previous point from your tweet. It's really the pushing through the discomfort and that feeling of gratification and connection through doing something hard that makes us feel good. I'd be curious, what what do you think golf would be like if it wasn't hard? Would would there be as many golf nuts? I don't think so. I think I think those those great moments that we experience on the course are because of all the bad moments. And so you need, you know, we need that contrast in the game. And I think it would just get, I think it would get very boring. I mean, initially, I think it'd be great. I mean, who wouldn't want to go out there and, you know, have a birdie part in every green and and shoot shoot in the 50s. But uh, I think that, yeah, after that, it would lose its appeal mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, and the fact that it is such a hard game just really, you know, that, that's where the growth, the growth occurs, you know, when you have to experience those hard moments. And as, as I touched on, as we touched on earlier, and to be able to get through those and figure out better ways of doing things. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that, yeah, when uh, when people are at the end of their lives and the most satisfying experiences they've had are the ones where, they, you know, you've been faced with a challenge and you've had to really dig deep and struggle, go through some struggle to be able to get there. Yeah, I heard you talk. You've got so many players you work with at, at all levels and a lot of players at high professional, high amateur level. I'm sure they call you after their bad rounds, right? Um, I know I called my coach as a kid and it's like, I just need to just, throw up. I just need to get it out of me and tell, I want to go through every hole. <laughs> like, And to so talk about that, you know, I, I, because how often do you tell your players, this is just a hard game. I'm sure some want to hear that. And some don't want to hear that. How do we understand this is the hardest game in the world. It's also yeah. the most It's also the most gratifying. And how do we balance that and come back so we can play better the next day? Yeah, I do emphasize that a lot. You know, there's going to be more failures than successes. And I really do try to nurture that growth mindset as much as possible. So when players are failing, I mean, it's not like we're going to celebrate failure, but we embrace it because that is where the learning happens. And I think for, you know, it, it's hard to see what is being learned, you know, when emotions get in the way and the players really down. But when we can, you know, I recommend that they take, take a break and then come back to it before, you know, trying to analyze things when, when there's emotion, you know, like anything that we do. So when the player comes back to me, you know, hopefully after, you know, after 24 hours and, and wants to review their rounds, then we, we look at it as objectively as possible. I mean, I will always start off a conversation as what went well, you know, so we really try to at least think about those things. The brain itself will already do a good job of highlighting what didn't go well. I mean, even, even in good rounds that players um, play when they, when they speak to me afterwards, they're, they're still keen to tell me about what, what could have happened or, you know, what they did wrong, or if only they, they hadn't missed this putt. It's, it's amazing how that works. So even in there, 
uh, we try to pull out what you did well, what were you pleased with in the round, that proud of that you did well, and then, okay, well, let's, let's take a few things that you could have done better, and we'll really hone, uh, hone in on those and figure out, figure out what is it that you learned to become a better player. Yeah, I've, I've, I love what David said there, especially if a player's coming off a bad round or even that good round that went astray in the last two holes. What went well? That's very disarming. And a player mm-hmm. might just say, no, 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 no. We got to get into what I did wrong. And it's, no, no, no. What'd you do well? And, and, and because we, we forget that. We always forget that. Well, that's, that's actually a thing we've heard from many different coaches throughout the years is what happens when you play well. Not just what happened on the course, but let's reflect on all of those rounds you've played well. What were you doing? What were you thinking? What was your state, right? Were you talking a lot, you know, with your playing partners? Were you outgoing? Did you have a little swagger, you know, a little, a little cockiness? Or or, or I'm just comparing hole seven and eight that you made two great pars on, even though you had a terrible day. Let's go back to those moments of why you were comfortable and why you were able to perform. Right, David? Exactly. Yeah. I think you always want to tie it into process as much as you can. Okay. So you did this well. You know, my short game was, was, was great that day. Well, okay, why do you think that was? Were you paying particular attention to certain things? Did you practice a lot dur- during the week? So that it really just kind of reaffirms or reinforces what they're doing that is leading to that performance. I mean, obviously, there are some days where you're in that flow state and it's, everything just, just happens. Um, you know, you're not really sort of consciously doing, doing a whole lot. It's one of those great days. But most of the time, we're having to kind of consciously direct our attention towards certain things and use our controllers, use our self-talk, you know, remind ourselves of, uh, of what, what we need to do. But yeah, I think that in general, just, I mean, in life in general, reminding ourselves of what all the, the good things are that are happening and what we're grateful for and trying to take positives as much as we can. Because as, as I said earlier, that, you know, the brain has that negativity bias that we hear about quite a bit. And, you know, it's more predisposed to anchoring you know the the negatives you know so that we uh you know we know where that potential danger is in the future as a a survival mechanism so we have Mm. to try to actively reinforce positives as much as we possibly can more often we become more optimistic for sure let's dig into this a little bit because i want to talk to the listener and the golfer because i've been this many times of when you hear this and you're really in it you're really in the struggle you've had you know, months of maybe just playing your worst golf and it just cycles and you move faster and you're thinking of more stuff and you're adding on and adding on and changing and changing. Let's talk about pattern interrupts and how you simplify things for the struggling golfer that's really getting in their own way. Their true swing isn't coming out. They're getting really tight. They don't know how to hit the ball anymore. At least that's how it feels. When you talk to a golfer like that, it's really difficult to talk about what are you doing well, right? It's mm-hmm. difficult to pull out the positives. With that golfer, whether they're on the PJ Tour or an amateur, where do you start? How do you help simplify things? How do you help remove some of those layers and get some positive momentum going? Because confidence doesn't need to be seeing good things to feel confident, but there also is a ton of momentum with starting to even a single shot can start to make you feel a little bit better. And then you do a couple and now you're starting to build confidence and that can totally reverse that negative cycle. How do you think about this pattern interrupt with a player? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd I'd like to understand, you know, how they are approaching the round mentally, what it is that is causing. I mean, obviously there are just natural cycles in, in a player's performance, but that's not to say that a lot of that isn't caused by, sort of layering of, you know, the, the, the thinking around what's happening and how they are, you know, what their goals are for every round. I mean, if their goals are to go out there and break the cycle every time or to, you know, to shoot a certain score, these, these are all outcome-related goals. And I know that you guys have talked about this a lot on, on the podcast and it's not something that's, that's completely new, but we have to get back to process. And I know that that player is going to struggle with that because it's like, I want to try to fix things. And they're just becoming very, very driven by the outcome, which is then going to make them, it is going to create that tension and that performance state that you were talking about there that is just not conducive 
to be able to stay present. They're just more in that sort of threat state as opposed to the, you know, the, the opportunity state and, and, and being present. So it's, it's having them understand that, that, you know, it starts with a good state and, and good goals and being able to go out there and focus on the things that we can control rather than what we can't control, which is the outcome of each shot and what score goes down on the scorecard. David, it's, I feel like the classic, when we reflect on our rounds and we look at those holes where we struggled or those shots that we just couldn't execute, we typically say to ourselves, man, I just lost my focus there, right? I lost my focus. And David, would you agree if you lose your focus, it's because you, you lost, you got lost in the process somehow. There was a gap in, in your process. Talk about that because if you lose focus, then okay, you could say you weren't present but it has to go back to executing and doing your steps. What do you think? Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think that it's really important to have accountability for your, your process and your mental performance and to do that reflection in detail after the round. You know, was I, was I focusing on what I intended to focus on in the round? And when I wasn't, what, you know, where did my mind go? And so you consciously become very competent in that process and then it hopefully becomes more and more unconscious and requires le less energy. But yeah, that, that control of attention is probably like the number one mental skill in golf. Like being able to put your focus where it needs to be at, at that time, you know, whether it's before a shot and just being locked in and engaged with what you're intending to do with the golf ball, you know, or after a shot, you know, when you're having all these feelings arise you know, because you've you've hit an ugly shot and you're feeling just, you know, disappointed, angry. You know, it's in those moments where it's, it can be especially hard to keep control of your attention because your mind just goes into that negative place. So that's what I help golfers with a lot is is awareness of attention and being able to control attention. And part of that is uh, is having accountability around around the routines, you know, the process goals for the round. Well, David, your website featured a quote from Bruce Lee on focus. It said the successful warrior is an average man with laser like focus, which I really loved because I think a lot of golfers think they're average or below average. And, you know, Cermak, we were in Florida at the PJ show and we played together and I was getting way too deep on takeaway stuff, which I've had a tendency to do. And, um, first few holes was, you know, crazy bad of just too technical player side in, in my swing. But then the theme of the day was lack of focus. And I wasn't thinking of, because I was so in my swing, I wasn't thinking about elements. I wasn't thinking about lines. I wasn't. And it's so interesting how that dictated the entire round was whether or not I was focused on what I was trying to do. And I see that a lot with people that message us with people that I coach is like, there's no routine there's no plan. And you really think about like, how can your brain help your body do something if you don't tell it exactly what it needs to do? You think your right. brain's just going to do it on its own? You get, it needs direction. So I yeah. love that quote about the average man with laser-like focus is, is a warrior, successful warrior. Yeah. And, and that's what the game of golf gives us. It gives us these opportunities to train these skills that transcend the game of golf into more important things. So being able to you know, have focus when you're under pressure, you know, is a, is a great skill to have. And so, yeah, every, every time we go out, it's, it's important to, to, to think about the bigger picture and that we're able to develop these skills through the game. But yeah, there's got to be an anchor for your attention. Like when you're meditating, your anchor is your breath and you return your attention to the breath. You know, too many players just go out with the good intentions of like, okay, I'm going to stick to my my routines for every shot and in between shots, I'm going to do this and that. But they abandon it pretty quickly when when things aren't going well. So, you know, that that is, as I said, part of the training. It's like, okay, I want you to be completely honest with your mental score for that round of golf. You know, what were the goals? And players share their goals with me before a round. And then how well are you actually able to follow through on those things and fulfill that promise, you know, to yourself and to me? So you know what freaks me out? I used to be pretty lax on this. My mom used to tell me this all the time as a kid. I didn't listen. And now that I'm 35, I've realized, holy shit, we need to get serious about this stuff. So 
I did some research, guys, and I pulled up guys in the PGA Tour that have had scary surgeries with melanoma or other forms of skin cancer from all the sun exposure we get from playing golf, right? So here's the list. Charlie Hoffman got a huge chunk removed out of his arm. Looks like he got mauled by a bear. Brad Faxon, Roy Sabatini, Stuart Sink, Justin Thomas, Andy North, Adam Scott when he was 31. How crazy is that? Jimmy Walker, the list goes on and on. Okay, I also did some more research. According to a March 2020 study released by the Skin Cancer Foundation, recreational golfers are at a high risk of developing skin cancer every hour while on the course. It's likely they receive 3.5 to 5.4 times the amount of UV radiation exposure needed to cause a sunburn. More than that, water and, and sand traps are hazards in more ways than one. Water and sand can reflect UV radiation so that the skin absorbs it twice, okay? And the more that someone burns says the foundation, the greater the risk of skin cancer. So if you've ever had a sunburn, that means you have greater risk to have skin cancer. And this message is even more important for you. So our friends at Oars and Alps have made skin protection from the sun as easy and pleasurable as it can get. Okay. It's not a fun thing. We just have to do it. We're out there for four or five hours. We are more at risk than maybe any group out there. Okay. So go to oarsandalps.com. Enter the code SPF train. You're going to get 15% off. I love the ghost stick, which is a clear thing you can put on your face. The new SPF spray is amazing. You don't even have to rub it in. It's great for reapplying. You can keep it in your bag. It's super small, great for carry-ons. And also their SPF spray, they have zinc oxide spray as well as regular spray up to SPF 70 with antioxidants and other things. No harsh chemicals like your Copatron Sports, or your banana boats that you guys have probably used for years. So Let's protect ourselves. Let's go out and enjoy the ride and not have to worry about the damage we're doing to our skin. And I know nobody thinks they're going to get skin cancer, but I've started to notice even sunspots and like my skin starting to look older. And it's like, okay, if you don't care about sun damage for cancer, at least I'm sure you care about your appearance. Do it so that you're protected from the sun and you don't look like a baseball glove from high school. Okay. Let's at least preserve what we have left of our appearance while we're playing this great game. Okay. So go to oarsandalps.com, enter the code SPF train, get 15% off and let's protect ourselves out there. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. David, where I was going next, I like what you said about having an anchor and I want to talk to you about post-shot routine. Evan and I were talking about post-shot routine, this idea that's taught by you or a lot of coaches. I grew up playing. I played in college. When I play my best, even to this day, my pre-shot routine looks pretty similar every time. But my post-shot routine doesn't. And I'm not sure you can actually have the same post-shot routine, right? And it can be from little things, right? If you're on the, a par three and you hit, you hit first, you've got somebody hitting after you, you, know, you can't make those practice swings like you could in the fairway, for example. So, or, you know, in the array of emotions and you're getting to your next shot. But if there's one thing after every shot, and obviously we like to talk about when your plan doesn't go well, what is that one anchor that you do after every shot? Because I just don't think you can repeat the same process and behaviors every time, but there's gotta be something. Is it a breath? Is it some sort of self-talk? Help yeah. our listeners understand. It, it, it could be. Um, what you said about your pre-shot routine looking the same, is it the same as your, is your mind's flashlight on the same things? Like each time are you fully engaged? I know we're talking about pre-shot routine, but I just wanted to pick up on what you said there. It, it looks the same. Is it the same with your, with your focus? Mm. It could be, question. it could not. Right. <laughs> because, yeah. because so it looks the same if we were to watch it. Right. Because the pre-shot routine, right. If I'm telling you I'm doing good, I did my three practice swings. I did my two looks. I took my deep breath. I three. walked in. <laughs> three, three practice swings. Sir? Well, we maybe that's talk yeah. about that, but I yeah, digress. And Keep going. <laughs> I know we've got a pace of play problem out there, <laughs> but a post shot routine doesn't, it doesn't have those things. Sometimes right. you right. see players, you know, you try to feel what you did, but that's what I'm trying yeah. to understand. Yeah. Trying, yeah. Trying to understand. Now, yeah. I understand what you're saying there. Yeah. So obviously with the, the post-shot routine, you're responding to an outcome, right? Um, and I think it's a good idea to anticipate these different outcomes that you could have and think about how you're going to respond to those outcomes. 
but a lot of it comes subconsciously you know it's like when you hit the ball out of bounds off the tee you know that's always going to feel you know there's always going to be a feeling associated with that right you know feelings being the the physical sensations of, of emotions and the emotion that we that we get when we do that is going to be I don't know, just disappointment, frustration, I, embarrassment, eyes are getting shame. smaller as opposed to bigger, right? Like it just, you just go this instead of, you know, after that great swing, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's even worse after that. So um, we can't really control that, but we have to be get, get good at being able to control our response to whatever the emotion is that arises. Um, so I think that there would be a different type of uh, post-shot routine depending on what the outcome is. I mean, obviously good shots, you know, there's no problem responding to a good shot. It's like, okay, well, just admire it and, uh, you know, anchor it and hold on to that feeling for as, for as long as you want, really. Um, but then with the, and the okay shots for, for that matter as well. And maybe David, um, the, the, in the good ones, sorry to interrupt you for a second. Maybe the good ones is a great opportunity for self-talk to reiterate I mean, self-talk's always helpful, but even especially on the good ones that maybe we don't do enough of, that's a great time to solidify that you can do this, that you could hit that shot and you did it. Let's keep it going. You know, let's take that same approach to the next one. Put it in the memory bank per se. Yes, I like that. Yeah, anchoring it with self-talk, which you can then use again. You know, if you are connecting that positive emotion with, with um, yeah, a phrase, a statement, um, or a word, um, or you know, that's what I'm capable of doing, or you know, whatever it might be. So just kind of yeah, just as you said, put it in your memory bank and have that be an association with the player that you are. Those kinds of shots, yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a good point, um, which you could then use in your in your pre-shot routine again. Um, you know, whatever word that you tie that that shot to, that feeling to. Yep. Um, but then, yeah, the, the, the not so good shots obviously require a bit more skillful emotional management. Um, but I, th I think noticing is probably the, uh, the best thing that you can do after a bad shot is just kind of notice how you feel. And when you when you notice how you feel, then you can then you can respond in the best way possible. It's when you don't notice how you feel that that feeling can then get bigger um, and then start controlling your your thinking or you know start you with the, the negative self-talk and then it just takes longer and longer to recover from that that's great david i mean it's hard because being aware like can you get back to a place to just after a poor shot to just be aware and, and really understand what happened there and then ultimately move on because you got another shot to hit but it, it's hard to get back to present like you talk about but that's yeah. the goal uh, oh, oh it is yeah um, I mean, I remember John Rahm saying, talking about like emotions and obviously he experiences, you know, we've all seen him experience high emotion on the course. And, you know, he talked about just being present to the emotion um, or, or sorry, experiencing the emotion. And when you're experiencing the emotion or the, the feelings that you can feel in your body, then then you are being present. You're not like um, letting that feeling that you're experiencing make you worried that you're going to hit another bad shot or what might happen next or um you know just start you know pa panicking i love but, this but david it, but it takes practice yeah you know the mental game is you know these, these are all skills as i know you guys know um that we get the opportunity to practice through this game and, and and in our lives as well i mean there's going to be situations that we deal with you know throughout the week that create those same feelings that we have to navigate as we do on on the golf course so that's what i say to my my younger players it's like you know you're you know, it's not just when you're on the golf course that you have to do these things. It's when you're off the golf course and somebody's said something that's upset you or, you know, whatever it might be that you, you know, have to have that mindful attention. Well, let's talk about this with life because this is what I love about this conversation and golf is what you just said. Some people are like, well, how does this help me with life? What you just said is a great example of how it can help you with life because one thing I've learned over the years and what I love about this game is if you really take a step back and think about it, I want the listener for this day, the day you're in now or tomorrow or the week ahead, think about how many hours of your day is spent resisting your current reality, feeling, emotion, thoughts. 
right? What John Rahm said there is, and I know people that don't necessarily have a lot of mindfulness practice or awareness of this. A lot of people don't know what to do with this. They hear just sit with the fear or Mm. accept the fear when, you know, I'm 35. So people that are listening, they're my age might've had 30 years of training and wiring to resist fear. So that's an automatic pattern. And by the way, it's how we're all wired to resist fear um, because it's, we're, we're wired to survive. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So just the ability to notice things and not resist right away, but even a second of allowing it is a huge skill with any situation. It could be your boss says something in a meeting, a bad email, something with a family member, friends, anything, any situation. So let's build on this a little bit, David. Let's talk about how with your younger players, they can use this awareness practice to make their life better. Because that's the ultimate goal of this show. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think that that's the, the greatest value out of the game of golf. Um, and obviously, you know, I work, I work with tour players and, you know, work with competitive golfers, you know, who obviously want to shoot low scores and achieve things. And, and I want to help them do that. And I, I enjoy, you know, watch, watching their progress, you know, and developing their, their skills. But ultimately, I think the greatest value is what we learn about ourselves that transcends the game. And as I said earlier, like, you know, we get to experience all these different emotions without any sort of real life consequences when, when we're on the golf course. But yeah, I like I like what you said there about just being able to be 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 mindful or, or we we escape fear a lot or we escape those uncomfortable feelings, don't we? And now it's even uh, even easier, you know, with with, you, with your phone in your hand. It's like, oh, I'm feeling you, know, you get that feeling of worry, and then you kind of just distract yourself with something else, and uh, you know, all the, the entertainment that we have. And I'm just going to move on to this now. Um, whereas you know, the growth and, and the learning comes from being able to, as you said, sit with the feelings and, and sit with the, the, the uncomfortable feelings that, that you're having. And yes, you know, you, you can try to figure out why it is that you're experiencing those, those, those uncomfortable feelings and figure out solutions. But uh, just initially sitting with those feelings is going to help them the, the, the dissipate as opposed to just, you know, making it worse and changing your, your state. And everything kind of comes back to the story, right, David? Because it's like, it's it's not necessarily the bad shot that made you feel anything. It's not the thing that someone said in that meeting that made you feel anything. It's the story that went along with it and the narrative that says, I suck or I should be better, right? It's the resisting. It's 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 telling yourself that you should be in a different reality or that person should have said something differently, or that ball should have gone in the fairway. It's that that creates that emotion. It's not the event. Right, absolutely. And that, that's why if we can be completely present is- to the experience, you know, we don't we don't trigger that narrative and that those negative thinking patterns around that particular event. Um, I mean, I, I know these things are easy to say, and it's a lot harder to, to actually do. Um, you know, as, as human beings, but uh, we can we can get better at it, you know, daily and with every round that we play, because you know that you're always going to experience adversity every time you go out on the golf course. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's that story that gets repeated in our minds. And that just becomes, you know, the narrative and part of the belief system. Whereas, yeah, if we can be present to it and respond skillfully, you can create a, a, a new narrative around it. Um, and obviously a big part of that is acceptance of what, of what is and, and, and what happened, which is, which is very hard to do, but uh, a skill. Yeah. Certainly develop skill too. Um, yeah. David, I, I, I was really curious to dig in, to dig in with you regarding mental game and course management and they go hand in hand. And I've always, I've thought about this a lot and, I really don't feel like you can take those great leaps as a player with your mental game if you don't understand course management, if you don't know how to assess a hole, assess a shot, assess risk essentially out on the course. 
So I'd love to talk through with you how you work with your players regarding this. And, it, you know, it's different levels, obviously, in the game. But still, how do you get to be, you know, a scratch player to that plus three to a plus four? Obviously, those jumps from a six to a zero, all those things. But I really, you have to understand, you said something really great. I think it was, your skills are what they are that day. So when you get to the first hole, your body on Thursday morning, your body might be tight or you might've had a long night last night and you kind of have to know who you are and you have to have to manage who you are that day. And you also have to have great course management. To me, those are really keys to the mental game. You're managing your personal kind of situation that day. And then also how to play the right shot and how to execute. Right. Yeah, I think that a lot of that comes down to just managing the variability of the game. Yeah, some days you have your A game, your B game, your C game. And I and I would resist labeling what game you have that day because it's possible that your you know C game could turn into your A game but by, by the end of the round. But that said, yeah, I think you you do have to make decisions on you know how well you're striking it that day. I mean, I've you know, I work with tour players who you know, with their caddies on, on the driving range and their caddy is watching closely on, you know, how, how they're hitting the ball that day, you know, to be able to help them pick the, the right shot when they're on the course. And, you know, caddies will say to me off the round, yeah, I noticed, uh, you know, he just wasn't quite striking it. And I was kind of, so when he was advising him on shots, he was just, he was telling him, he was factoring in that he was mishitting it slightly uh, that day. But uh, yeah, I think I think it'd be a good idea to have, an A and a B plan for every shot. Mm. You know, if I'm feeling confident, I've got my A game, then, you know, I'm going to choose this, these lines into the holes. If I, you know, if I'm not feeling so good and uh, I've got more of my C game, then, you know, I'm probably going to choose, I, I will choose more conservative targets and aim into these areas. And, you know, if you're a competitive player, then you have your strategy mapped out before the round, you know, or at least know the areas where you want to, hit into holes from and where you can miss them. Um, but uh, yeah, I like the idea of having having an A and a B plan. Yeah. It's funny. I was talking to a guy um, on a coaching call, one of my players yesterday, and we found that, um, you know, mid handicap, just like a lot of golfers out there. And we realized that his course management plan, Serm, was only making perfection a possibility of a good outcome, meaning he was setting up in a way, not taking into account his miss on a super narrow, one of the hardest holes that the only way he was going to be in play is if he hit it perfect. Right. So that's one to your point, David, about understanding dispersion, your patterns, your misses, your tendencies. But the other thing that I found really interesting, David, was we discovered that when he was playing conservative, also came tentativeness and defensiveness. He wasn't matching conservative targets with still aggressive swings or committed swings. Right. right. And we talked about, you can't have both conservative and defensive. Right. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make with course management is they think they're playing conservative. So they, they remember balls that went OB on this hole in past experiences. And now they're going to hit a four iron off the tee but it's still possible to hit a four iron four irons, not an easy shot either for a mid handicap for anyone really. And so I think it's an important reminder of this conversation of like, let's pick the spots that give us room for error so that we can commit to them and feel like we're going to be okay regardless. And two, how do we, how do we stay aggressive and stay offensive in those moments versus trying to prevent a past bad outcome. Yeah, I think you're right in, in separating those out in that it, uh, you know, the, the planning phase is the planning phase. If you decide, given the various situation and how you feel that a conservative target is a better target, you've still got to be as committed in that, you know, what I call the, the athletic phase of the routine as you would be if, if you were choosing a more, you know, slightly more aggressive target. And they always think that a conservative target is, is better it's just sort of how how conservative but yeah that player has still got to have consistency in the routine 
in that last phase from when they start their walk into the ball to when they start their swing as they would do whatever the shot. And that's, that's another thing that a player wants to practice. And it's like, how do I make sure that I am 100% committed to the, the shot that I'm about to hit? You know, perhaps there's a way that they can do that or talk to themselves in a way that is going to help them be more, be aggressive and not tentative in the swing. I think the funny thing about golfers is, is we all think we know what's best for us, but a lot of times we don't. A lot of times there's so much misinformation. We think we know what to work on in their swing. We think we know what equipment to play. We think we know what shaft we need. We think we know what loft our driver should be. We think we know what ball we should play. We think we know the size of our glove and what glove we should play, right? But is there a size that's actually a better fit for you? I talked to the founders of our friends at Red Rooster Golf. And actually, it blew me away when they told me that they carry gloves in up to 34 sizes. 34. Did you hear me? 34 sizes. It's crazy. Most golfers never even heard or considered a cadet size, which is slightly shorter fingers and a wider palm. Now, my buddies have made fun of me. They're like, oh, you got short fingers. You know what that means? But Cadet size gloves actually fit me better because I don't know. My my wife jokes to me. I've got these like huge pads in my palms. I have really wide palms. So cadet gloves actually fit me better, which I didn't know until I learned about it. So head over to redroostergolf.com. Maybe consider moving down a size or even into a cadet size. Apparently, a lot of people are playing gloves too big for them. And see if you can find a better fit. Free shipping and free exchanges until you can get fit properly. So go to redroostergolf.com, use code TRAIN20 for 20% off and get yourself a glove that fits you better because the glove that fits better performs better and it lasts longer. All right, let's get back to the show. I almost want to ask David the thing we were debating in Chicago about commitment of the plan versus commitment of the swing. We haven't been able to ask and guess this since we debated. I want to get David's take real quick. So David, in Chicago, we played like five or six holes with a commitment challenge of yeah. what if we committed 80% of our swings, what would that lead to? And what we found, which was a surprise, mm-hmm. is it was easier to figure out, did we have a committed plan? But it was actually quite difficult to figure out, was that a committed swing? And so when I know you have a mental scorecard for your players, Curious to get your thoughts on that. How do your players and how do you define commitment? Is it a committed plan? Is there a way to know if you have a committed swing? Because if you hit it good, it's kind of easy to just say, yeah, it was. If you hit it poorly, it's almost equally as easy to say it wasn't. And it's hard to decipher if that was just a poor result. And then the in-between can be, I didn't hit it that great, but I missed it where I needed to miss it. So I actually committed to the plan, but maybe I made a little bit of a guidey move right? because it was a little bit of an anti-right swing because the trouble was right. So these were the conversations we were having, David. It was very difficult (laughs) to figure out. Right. Love to get your thoughts. So, so I understand the, the two types of commitment there. So where is the focus during the swing? Is there any, is there any particular focus during the swing? Or is it just, you know, you think it's like a subconscious thing that you've got the fear of going right and then you, you know, you close the face early or... Right. And, but you put it to where it needed to go as opposed to where it really can't go. I think it was a combination of both of what you're saying, David. Like, I think that's what made it challenging. Well, sometimes it's very subconscious. You stepped in having a plan. Yeah. You were clear on yeah. your club choice, your lines. And... When you hit a poor one, it was very difficult to say, well, I was committed to my plan. Did something happen at the I top? Execute. Yeah. You know, yeah. or did I just not execute, well, but it was a commitment? It's what you have control over, right? I mean, you have control mm. over what your intention is for the shot and, you know, create priming your mind before you hit the shot, visualizing, you know, seeing your target, however you see your target. Were you completely clear on what you were were intending to do you know it sounds like you don't have complete control over what happened during that golf swing i mean unless you have like a certain swing thought that you know creates a more aggressive swing and you didn't do that but yeah the you know the the subconscious 
part of it you don't really have full control over. But you found that was there was there a correlation between the two? Like when it was you were more uncommitted in the with the intention that the swing was correct. Yeah, that well. that's what that's work. Not to spoil the video, but that's <laughs> that's kind of where Cermak and I netted out was because we talk about a lot of coaches. It's it's really one of the best things to do early on in the in your mental game journey is to have something to track from a, a process standpoint that you can score yourself on versus your regular score. And it was ironic that in this challenge of sorts, we found it difficult to track commitment. And so what we realized is I think the committed plan yeah. is probably the goal. Well, exactly. Um, unless you're playing a game within a game, like we learned from Lynn and Pia at vision 54 and your swing commitment would be a sensory driven state of lightness at the top, good tempo, holding your finish and having something that's more trackable there. But even that's a split second might be tough yeah. to, to know. Yeah. Some players are more aware of what's happening in their swing, but I would always lean to, you know, very simple swing focus, if anything at all. But, you know, the other factor is what's happening when you're over the ball, like you might decide on your shot from behind the ball see it walk in and then you're getting over the ball and it's like you know there's just a, a tiny little thought about where you don't want to hit it and then yeah if that happens right before you start your swing then um yeah it probably will impact your swing that's not to say those thoughts they don't necessarily correlate to a, a bad shot and that's what i, I do tell players as well just because you're not feeling confident or you know you've, you've just thought about what you don't want to do don't three putt it that it's going to result in a bad execution you don't want a player thinking that because then it really, really will mess with their swing. I really connect the committed plan to the committed routine and doing the steps in your routine. The poor shots I was hitting, let's say those first five holes, it was because I was rushing my routine. I was not looking at everything in front of me. I didn't have a clear thought. And then you make, let's say those bad swings. Then you have those moments where you made solid swings. You felt like you did what you were supposed to do. You just maybe didn't have the right, plan too like oh i should have landed that in the front of the green instead of the middle of the green that's right. a little firmer yeah like, I'll, I'll be I'll think be about these things even with a short iron but you didn't but you made a good swing but you're over the green <laughs> I'll, I'll be interested to uh to hear more about your study there because that time over the ball is is something that pl most players don't really think about you know we talk about the pre-shot routine and some players you know, might just have a sort of a basic understanding of what, what a good routine is. But then, yeah, you get over the ball and it's like, you know, that, uh, you know, hopefully few seconds, so much can happen in that, in that few seconds. If you don't have, again, what we were talking about earlier, an anchor for your attention and you're looking up and down and seeing the target. I remember Tiger Woods saying that, you know, even when he was looking at the ball, he could still see the shot he was going to hit and the target in his mind. And that's driving the swing. Mm. It's worth considering and doing some, some practice around that. Well, on the opposite side of that, because Tiger to us seems so just incredible. Jake Jordan Spieth, we get to listen to him every week. He talked mm -hmm. about it at the Masters. Due to the mental grind, 50% of my swings, I wasn't even really thinking about a target. <laughs> it was very revealing. Like, yeah. and it's, it's, it's very It's crazy true. to think that at that level, that, yeah. that, that can happen. I mean, I've, I've worked with tour players and you know, done playing lessons with, with tour players and did you, have a, did you have a target in mind there? Mm, it was a bit vague. I mean, every level of the game requires that, that mental training. Um, and uh, you know, every player of any level can benefit from, from these things. Now, David, we talked about distraction when we were talking about emotions and allowing things to happen as probably like a, not a great alternative of how we can scroll on our phone and just always be in escape mode. But I do think it's probably good to say there's great distractions too. Like that player you brought up that says, I'm over a putt and I get the thought, don't three putt. Well, a great distraction from that thought, you can allow that thought to happen, but then say, okay, what's my spot? All I have to mm -hmm. do is roll this ball over my spot and stay down and, and do my thing. And that's what I have to do, right? That's a process driven thing that I can control. Who knows what the green will do? to the ball, 
Tiger, you just described did the same thing. He could be feeling whatever, but his productive distraction will be the visualization of the shot he wants to hit. So I think that's a great tool for everybody to take away from today of like distraction isn't necessarily all bad. There can be productive distractions from whatever thoughts or things on the outside come in. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's about how long you spend with that negative distraction that is going to make the difference. And, mm. you know, the, the, the top players don't have any less negative thoughts than the average player. It's just that they're able to notice quicker and bring themselves back to what they're supposed to be doing, what they intend to be focusing on at that moment. And that's where that awareness practice comes in, because if you're not aware that when you're over the ball, most of the time you're thinking about what you don't want to do, then, you know, you can't change anything. I meditate every day and, and I, I do recommend it to my students. I know it's not for everybody, but uh, neuroscientists tell us that there's, there's no better way to train awareness of attention and to keep you focused on what you, you're intending to focus on. So, um, you know, it can only help with your golf. Well, and it, even at the basic level to think about meditation, it, it helps promote just slowing things down. The best players, they walk slower, they're methodical. They're, yeah. And I think for people who don't maybe connect to meditation right on the surface, but are looking to improve their game, well, you've got to be able to slow it down. And you got to find tools to do that. Meditation is a great example. Yeah. yeah. I think you're, yeah, you're more aware of what's happening. And so with that awareness, you just have greater control. And obviously, yeah, when players are under pressure, they typically speed up. And, you know, if you're not aware that, that that's happening or that you're, you, you are feeling under pressure, then you can't really change that. So as far as I, I know, that is the best way to train awareness, which, which I think can only help your golf game. So David, before we let you out of here, I know we're almost at time here. I always find it interesting when we have mental coaches and sports psychologists on the show to dig into and just get a quick snippet into your game because, you know, Rick Sessinghouse has told us like, it's, it's really easy to be a coach, but every time he goes out and plays, he says he becomes a better coach the week following because you feel it in your own body and you go through this stuff. And even if you're working in it every day, that stuff's going to come up for you, David. And so let's finish today on talking about what are David's struggles as a player? What were maybe some of your low points that you had to work through yourself and how did that make you a better coach? Yeah, I like that question. I mean, I, I came at this from being a player and realizing that something was just not adding up with, you know, the work I was putting into the game and the, the technical training I was doing and how I was in, in practice. And I think that it is hard to be a coach without being able to relate to the, the players. Um, and so I do go out, I do go out and play. I try to get out. I mean, I only get a couple of months, a couple of rounds a month in. Yeah. I want to try to experience a bit of pressure as well. So we find ways to, to do that. But my challenge is I don't, play enough to be able to uh, to get where I'd like to be with my golf game but for me it's probably it's not knowing where my misses are coming from enough or enough about my my swing at the moment to be able to kind of make some adjustments uh, when I'm out there but uh, from a mental standpoint probably just practicing what I preach with with focus during my routines and really having clear intentions for for the shots I'm about to hit and then, uh, you know, being able to, to quickly move on and get back into the present moment. But I do try to keep myself, you know, re relatable to the players I'm working with. Well, it's really a good kind of lesson for everyone, right? If I'm going to do anything today, David, right, you play two times a month. I'm going to hit my checkpoints in my routines. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, keep I mean, that's, all, that's all I can hang my hat on. Yeah. And I, and I keep the mental scorecard and I try to be very you know, diligent about, about doing that. Um, I have my sort of my player identity goals for the rounds like you know which which version of myself do i want to bring to this round because you know who okay. i am as a golfer and who any player is as a golfer could be quite different to who they are with their friends with their family when they're doing other activities so you know defining who it is that you want to be on the course before you go out um i think is is a key part of actually being that that player and acting and thinking and 
you know, um, in, in line with that. Well, it's kind of full right. circle, David, right? We talked about how, if you think about how much of your round or your life is resisting things, you're a sports psychologist and mental coach with many professional players. And this is what you do. And you still go out and find that, oh, I, I wasn't focused, right? So that's what we try and talk about on this show a lot is it's not just like you listen to a few episodes and you got it and you're a guru out there and you drop five shots in your handicap. The whole point of playing is it's hard and you have to remind yourself to do things every time, no matter how many good shots you hit, no matter how many poor shots you hit. And that's the practice. That is the practice. And the goal of it is what was I doing? What was I not doing? What do I need to get back to? And that's the game versus play yeah. the whole round trying to avoid things. And you realize I wasn't focused on what I was trying to do the entire day. You know, Connecting not a great feeling, yeah. but still could teach you to do that better the next time. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The, the learning is, is where it's at. You know, you know that, that prompts the, the score all the time. You know, it's, it's what you're learning about yourself as a player and as a person on the course every time. That was, I, that's why I did that. That I get it now. Right. But it's, yeah, I see why I was uncomfortable over that, butt, right. Or mm -hmm. and like that, that dog leg left made me feel tense. And so right. David, um, before we let you out of here, is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to say before we go and we tell people where to find you, or is there something that we've talked about that you want to reiterate and leave our listeners with before we go? No, I don't think so. I mean, we, I think we covered we covered a lot, a lot of good stuff there. We covered the self-talk. I mean, we didn't talk about body language. Um, we talked about like you know controlling emotions and arousal. I think we got it. Well, good. And I think you know we'll have you back again, and we can maybe hone in a little bit on some certain topics. Yes. We can kind of discuss yeah. before, and I think we'd love to do that with our guests. Yeah. Second, oh, third, absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you. David for hopping aboard. David, you're at golf state of mind on Instagram, golfstateofmind.com, which has a ton of amazing there's eBooks and free downloads and great articles. And so if you guys want to dig in more on David, that's where you find them. And we'll have to have you back again and dig in more ourselves, but thank you, David. Pleasure having you on board. You are very welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thanks guys. Hey guys, this is Evan real quick before you hop off the train. I got something for you. It's called The Train of Thought. It's our new email newsletter. Would you like to get one nugget, insight, or thought that we're pondering every week that could help keep you sharp and help your mental game? Go to thepartrain.com and subscribe to The Train of Thought newsletter today. It's really the best way to enjoy the ride. See you guys.